Good morning. Come on, talk to me. Good morning. It's great to see you. Let me start by doing something different. I, I know that our worship team puts a lot of prayer uh, into the, the songs and lyrics that we sing to the Lord each week, and, and this song that we just sang, um, all authority and every victory is yours. Uh, we will overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Everyone overcome. Every one of you are going through something. I know you are. It's just too typical with humanity that we're all facing some sort of challenge. This morning, mine was waking up with my left uh, eye completely swollen shut. And without my wife's help, I would have put eardrops in it. Um, I was holding ice on it, and she finally, you know, we did what any wise adult would do in that moment. We Googled, what do you do when you wake up and your eyes swollen shut, and you have to teach in church in an hour and a half and can't go to the doctor? So uh, I was putting ice on it. She runs in, take the ice off now. I'm like, oh my gosh, why? And she said, you got to put this heat on there. And anyway, <clears throat> so all that to say, I'm, I'm really looking forward to hugging each one of you in the lobby afterwards. <laughs> this morning, just a nice, affectionate squeeze. Um, but all that to say, Jesus overcame, and we overcome because of Jesus. Whatever you're going through right now, I, I want to do something um, as, as an act of worship. We're going to inhale in just a moment, just a deep inhale, and then we're going to exhale. And I know you're going to do that the rest of this morning and, and day and life, but Let's do it differently right now because that inhale is to acknowledge God is my sustainer. I, I, I receive life from him. But that exhale is worship because that exhale is saying I can rest in the Lord no matter what I'm going through. I can still exhale and trust his sovereignty. He overcame, I will overcome. I don't know what that looks like, what overcoming in your particular situation looks like, but I know that God is with you. So let's do this together as worship. Come on. Deep inhale, go. And just exhale. Praise the Lord. Okay. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 18 in a red Bible underneath you. That is page 448 if you do not have your Bible this morning. Uh, and as you turn there, let me tell you that we just concluded a nine-week series on Galatians. Uh, if you have been traveling or on the golf course all summer, I would invite you to pull up those nine uh, teachings on our podcast, on our website, and give those a listen, especially if you have an upcoming road trip. There's nine sermons on Galatians to listen to. As a church, there are two critical ways that we want you to be involved here. There's many ways, but there's two critical ways. The first, uh, that we want you to participate in community. We want you to experience here authentic biblical community, and we'll talk in just a moment about what authentic biblical community looks like. And the second is service. We want you to sow your time and talent and energy into the ministry of this church, not only the ministry within, but this church's ministry exterior of these walls. As a church staff, we're honored and privileged to serve you, but the ministry that takes place here at Redeemer is yours because we believe, Ephesians 4.12, that our job is to equip you for the work of building up the body of Christ, building up the church. And so the ministry that takes place here is yours. Next week, we're going to focus on service and what that looks like as a part of Redeemer. But today, I want to look at what the Bible says about community and give an explanation of the importance of authentic biblical community in your life. 
Now, maybe you've heard of the Grant Study. This is a study that was put together by Harvard Medical School's uh, study of adult development. And it's been going, it's a 75-year study. Over the course of 75 years, uh, they've been studying the physical and mental health of two different groups of people. The first group are 268 Harvard University sophomores from the classes of 1939 to 1944. And the second group of people are 456 disadvantaged inner-city boys, non-criminal, from Boston neighborhoods, inner-city neighborhoods between those same years. Every subject of this study is a male, and every subject of this study is a United States citizen. By the way, President John F. Kennedy happened to be one of the subjects of this study, and his Results are sealed by the United States government until 2040, in case you're curious. Those that are alive are still being studied today. At minimum, every two years, over the course of 75 years, these people would be visited by doctors, therapists, counselors, psychiatrists, and so on. And what was studied was their mental health, their physical health, and that included the direct link to substance abuse. Uh, They studied their career enjoyment, their marriage quality, their sex life, their retirement experience, and even studied the effects of combat as 80% of the subjects of this study served in some capacity in World War II. Now, the primary goal, you might be wondering, why would they do this study over 75 years? The primary goal was to identify predictors of healthy aging. George Valiant, who directed this study for over three decades, because of the length of this study being 75 years, there's been a handful of different directors that have taken over that position. For over 30 years, he was the director, and he released his summary statement from what he found in this study. And this is his summary statement. The warmth of relationships throughout life have the greatest positive impact on life satisfaction by a show of hands to just be honest with one another today. How many of you are interested in a satisfying life? Go ahead. Just by show of hands. All of us want to have a satisfying life. And the results of this study, the warmth of relationships throughout your life have the greatest impact Greatest positive impact on your life satisfaction. The study revealed a few other summary statements. People that are more socially connected, they're happier, healthier, and they actually live longer. The study shows that it's not about the number of friends you have, but the quality of your relationships. And the study concluded that those that were happier in retirement were those who replaced their workmates with playmates. So you don't give up your career and no longer walk in community with one another. You go find playmates. So the most affluent, upper-class, elite, privileged demographic of Harvard University students and the most disadvantaged, at-risk youngsters in the inner-city neighborhoods of Boston produced the same results. We're not so different after all, are we? This study is one of those studies that shows science catching up to Scripture. 
I love it when that happens because the Bible has clearly painted a picture of the importance of community, and this study only supports that. We'll be in 1 Samuel 18 today, but let me back up to chapter 15. In, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, the Lord gives the prophet Samuel a message for the king of Israel. Now, if you are the king, imagine being told this, Saul, you have rejected the word of the Lord. It gets worse. The Lord has rejected you as the king of Israel. This is the message the prophet brings to the king. It was time to anoint a new king. Samuel travels to Bethlehem where he meets David and he anoints David. And instantly it says in scripture, when Samuel anointed David, the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and came upon David. In the next chapter, David is delivering groceries to his brothers who are at war. And he ends up getting into one of the most well-known fights in all of human history, David versus Goliath. And I love how Rich Mullins puts it. David did not kill Goliath because he set out that morning to kill giants. David set out that morning to give sandwiches and cheese to his brothers, and Goliath got in his way. David returns to the king's courts after this famous fight. He's still holding Goliath's head in his hands. <clears throat> and it says that the people of Israel celebrated. There was singing and clapping in the streets. David had favor with many. He was promoted in his rank in the army. The Bible says that he was successful in every single thing that he did, and the women went crazy for this brother. David's life was changed forever in an instant, and he would even go on eventually to marry uh, one of Saul's daughters. Saul, who's watching this young man flourish, is burning with jealousy, and although the future of Israel rides on David's shoulders, his life is at risk. And here we see in this season of David's life, in this time in history, one of the greatest friendships, one of the most famous friendships unfold, and that is David and Jonathan, 1 Samuel chapter 18, starting at verse 1. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe that he was wearing, and he gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. So let's look at a few of the captivating characteristics of this relationship that unfolds before our eyes in Scripture, and it starts with Jonathan becoming one in spirit with David, Jonathan loving David as himself. The Hebrew text actually tells us that their souls were bound together. They were knitted together. They were chained together, unbreakable. This friendship was pure. This friendship was true. And this friendship was based around their love for God and their love for one another. And the essence of this friendship, the very essence of this friendship was that Jonathan loved David more than he loved 
himself. Jonathan wanted David to prosper in life more than Jonathan wanted it for his own life. We often want that for our kids, don't we? We often have that view in our children, but how often do we have that view for our peers, our colleagues, our siblings? And ultimately, this friendship is evidence later in Scripture of God's sovereignty and protection over David. Jonathan being faithful, faithful to God in the way that he grows in friendship with David, eventually is God's sovereignty over David's life. A few chapters later, Saul tells Jonathan, his own son, to kill David. And because they are one in spirit, because he loved David as he loved himself, Saul's request, of course, was impossible. One in spirit, deep love. Jonathan, it says, he made a covenant with David. He made a covenant with David. Often when I officiate wedding ceremonies, I tell the bride and groom that that day they will make a covenant. They are not signing a contract. You will sign contracts your entire life. That is putting your name on paper and it's exchanging promises with someone else. A covenant is not a contract. A covenant is an exchange of persons, not promises. They were one another. They belonged to each other. They made this covenant. And these two men were total opposites. If you'll consider Jonathan the firstborn, everybody knows a firstborn child, don't they? Very wealthy, a royal prince of Israel. And you have David, the baby of the family. Everybody knows a baby of the family, don't they? Not as rich, not as much wealth in his pockets or in the bank, and a common shepherd. Very different individuals, but despite their differences, they formed a covenantal friendship. This level of intimacy, especially between men, is extremely rare today. Some of you men just heard the things that I said and the way in which I described Jonathan and David, and it made you uncomfortable. I don't think I want a covenant with any other men in my life. I'm okay, you know. It's extremely rare when it comes to men. I've had the privilege the last few years of leading a Bible study in the University of Oklahoma football locker room. At times, having over half of the team sitting there listening to uh, Scripture and, and growing in community and discussion together, and, and even many athletes that had no walk with Jesus, no relationship with God, no understanding of Scripture, but they wanted, uh, they wanted to belong. That sense of belonging meant something to them, and so they would come, and they would ask a lot of questions about the Bible, and I would wrap my arms around many 300-pound offensive linemen, and I would look into their eyes, and I would say, I love you, brother. And if you want to picture what I'm talking about, just look at this. This is me and a good friend who has a very successful NFL career. Just picture my arms trying to wrap around that man. I would look into their eyes, and I would say, I love you, brother. I believe in you. You're a great man. God loves you. I love you. And these men, they would react physically. They would break eye contact immediately, turn their shoulders to me, and they would go, oh, yeah, th thanks, pastor. They had no idea how to respond. Probably a lot of these men's most awkward moments in life and in their college years were conversations with me. 
but I wanted them to feel loved. I wanted them to feel important beyond just a football player, okay? But it's so uncommon for men to engage in this kind of relationship that you can see the discomfort on their face. You should see some of the text messages that I send them and some of the abbreviated responses. Thanks is all I get. This is so rare. C.S. Lewis says eros, which is, of course, exotic love, erotic love. Eros will have naked bodies, of course. But friendship will have naked personalities, completely exposed personalities. So specifically to you men, because you women really excel in this. You get together, you're always touching on the couch, you go to the bathroom together, you share life secrets, you're very affectionate with each other, you cry over everything and anything. Men, we struggle with this, don't we? We don't want to be vulnerable with one another. This kind of relationship in Scripture that we see is awkward and uncomfortable and uncommon in many ways, but men, you are de desperately in need, believe it or not, for a David or a Jonathan in your life. I promise you, if you don't have a man that's meeting that role of that deep friendship, that vulnerable relationship in your life, then you are in desperate need of that today. God has wired you for that. Vulnerability and trust and commitment, unconditional love and grace between you and a brother. I've heard it said to be spiritually healthy, find one or two other men that you love and trust and respect and get together and share your biggest one or two secrets. That's a really fast way to get spiritually healthy, vulnerability. Paul David Tripp says it this way, true friendship which we see in Scripture, true friendship calls you out of the darkness of personal privacy and into the loving candor of mutual concern. It moves you from being a sealed envelope to an open letter. That's what true friendship looks like. And then it gets more awkward because Jonathan takes his clothes off and hands them to David. He's wearing this robe and he gives it to David. This robe was a royal Robe. This robe represented the future of Israel. This robe was Jonathan's and no one else's, but perhaps Jonathan was in tune with what God was doing in David's life, and he wanted to relinquish that robe. He wanted to renounce his claim to the throne by giving that outer wardrobe, that royal robe, to David. And he goes on and gives him his tunic and his sword and his bow and his belt, perhaps this is him willingly transferring his position, this particular position in Israel, to David. Can't you see the tremendous level of honor between these two men? Can't you see it? Can't you see this vulnerability? Can't you see, I mean, can you imagine watching these two men in their friendship? Do you have this kind of friendship? This is a great example of Romans chapter 12, verse 10, love each other. But don't just love each other, love each other with genuine affection. And then don't just love each other with genuine affection, love each other with genuine affection and then take delight in honoring each other. How great would it be for all of us if we had a brother or sister in our life outside of our spouse and children, 
that we could love one another with a genuine affection, and that we could take great delight in honoring that person. See, society is constantly in competition with one another. That's easy to see. But Jonathan, he's not competing with David. He's celebrating David. It's having that person in your life that you don't have to be equal to. It's having that person in life that you can pray for and celebrate when you see the move of God on their life. Their friendship thrived. It thrived. There was unity. There was love. There was commitment in the covenant they made. There was humility. There was safety in one another's company. So what what prevents our relationships from reaching that point of vulnerability? What prevents our relationships from thriving in that way? I'm so glad you asked. Here's some possibilities. Individualism and isolation. There's a quote that I love, and I can't give anyone credit for it because I don't know who said it. But they said that rugged individualism and chosen isolation violate the laws of human nature as much as trying to breathe underwater. If you want to isolate yourself and do this thing called life on your own without this kind of friendship, that quote says you might as well jump off a high dive and swim to the bottom of the pool and inhale. Because it's going to be that hard to get through life without this kind of relationship. Society promotes individualism. We know this. Self-made men. Self-discovery. Personal achievements. And on and on and on. But do you know what's so much better than individualism and isolation? Inclusion. You all know someone, I see Terry Dupree, you all know someone who just constantly gets you to come in and belong, don't you? You all know those people that it doesn't matter what they're doing, you're invited. And sometimes you're like, you know what, I don't want to be invited every time. Just back off. But what if the whole world, what if every Christ follower in this world had that tenacious spirit for inclusion? had that ability to rally people together rather than push people apart. I think that our effort to reach the lost and see their redemption in Christ would be put on steroids if we were inclusive of everyone. Proverbs 18.1 says, Whoever isolates himself, that person seeks his own desire, not the desires of others. It says that he breaks out against all sound judgment. You are operating against sound judgment when you isolate yourself. It's right there in Scripture. I want to show you a picture of a couple of sea otters. Cute, aren't they? Sea otters do this linking of hands whenever they sleep. And they, somebody just said, aw. I know, it's cute. They do this in pairs of two, or they do this in groups of up to 100. And when they get into these groups, it's called a raft. It's called a raft of sea otters. And as these rafts float up and down and drift up and, up and down the coast of the northern Pacific Ocean, they do this for one primary reason, so that when they sleep, no sea otter will drift away. 
And we can learn from a sea otter today. Some of you have drifted away. Some of you are running the risk of drifting away, either from the church or maybe from your spouse or from one another, from this body of Christ. Don't isolate yourself, my friends. Don't do it. It's dangerous. Don't run the risk in this life of drifting away. Find other people. Find a raft that exists already or go up to somebody in this church and say, you remember that sea otter illustration? You're my fellow sea otter and we're going to start a raft today. Start your own raft. Don't drift away. Don't let anyone else drift away. Guys, that's our responsibility as a part of the family of God, the body of Christ, inclusive of all people, nobody running the risk of drifting away. Second, insincerity prevents this kind of thriving relationship, otherwise known as superficial surface-level friendships. This culture today, of course, is one that you can become friends with somebody by clicking a button. You can go look at their profile, and you can learn 1,001 things about them and become their friend, and they know nothing about you, or vice versa. Or what about friendships that we form based upon what you can do for me? This consumer mentality of relationships, many times our neediness outweighs our usefulness to others. Many times we interact with others constantly according to our own needs rather than what I can do to meet someone else's needs. All of my kids have a BFFL, a best friend for life. But after one argument or one little disagreement or if you touch their toy without asking permission, and trust me, I watch this happen all the time. In our little circle, there's 15 kids represented in about five houses. It's just constant noise. I'll just throw that out there. But these kids, they become BFFLs, and after one little instant, they become a BFFN, a best friend for now. My kids are guilty of putting their best friend for life on like a three-day pro uh, probation. Like, you better prove that you deserve this position in my life before I continue to give you this title. It's silly, isn't it? But even as adults, we're guilty of acting this way, aren't we? Somebody wrongs us, talks behind our back, doesn't live up to their commitment, doesn't honor their word. We downgrade them in relation to our community with them. Even as adults, we're guilty of this. And lastly, rejection and comparison. Comparison leading to rejection. We compare houses, we compare cars, careers, vacations, physical appearances, social clubs and memberships, we gossip. Did you hear what happened? Did you see who was there? Did you know that she said this? And oh my gosh, did you see what their kid did? We put our best foot forward. At any cost, we put our best foot forward in fear of someone else seeing us, judging us, comparing with us, 
and ultimately rejecting us. Very recently, Joe and Margie Scruggs came over for dinner, two of the most beloved humans on planet Earth. And I did what any good father would do. I hurdled the cattle, called a family meeting, sat them all down on the couch, and I set the expectations. Before the Scruggs arrive, you wait here in the entryway, and you greet them when we open the door. You stick out your hand, but if they invite you in for a hug, great. If not, shake their hand. Make eye contact. Use your manners. Say yes, sir, or no thank you. You keep your volume down all night. Clean your plate. Don't, don't throw away any food. Pick up after yourself and then pick up after the scrugs. Bless them and honor them in every way possible and at any cost. Make every effort to make this the most enjoyable dinner in the history of Joe and Margie's life. And remember, kids, as far as they know, we're a normal family. Don't mess it up. <laughs> here's what I know, and here's what you know. And here's what I know, but I often forget. And you may forget it as well. I know that Joe and Margie love us because they love us. That's it. They love us because they love us. It's not something that we've done to earn or deserve their love. They certainly don't love us because of the way our kids act. I was made aware a few weeks ago of an inc incident where Margie was with my wife and our children and World War III broke out in the minivan. And when I brought it up to Margie and I said, I'm so sorry you had to witness that, she said, oh, honey, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. She loves us because she loves us. He loves us because he loves us. It's not conditional. You know what else is not conditional is the gospel. To conclude, let's consider the greatest picture of friendship in all of history. It's the gospel. As a matter of fact, the gospel is God is for us despite us. You see, the gospel in no way promotes individualism or isolation or insincerity or rejection or comparison. Jesus is for us despite us. Jesus actually removed his royal robe. His royal robe signifying his royalty, his position, his status as king. He took it off and he puts it over your shoulders and mine. And he did it in exchange for a cross, my friends. God is for you despite you. Friendship that we're talking about today is because of the gospel, I am for you despite you. You don't have to live up to anything to be my friend. Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I'm for you, despite you. And on the other end of these relationships is vulnerability. And that's admitting to someone, I need you to be for me, despite me. The gospel, God is for you, despite you. Friendship, because of the gospel, I am for you, despite you. And vulnerability on my end is to own up to you and say, I need you because of the gospel to be for me, despite me. Friends, this is a beautiful picture of relationship. And if Harvard Medical School 
had ever read John chapter 15, they would have saved a tremendous amount of time and money and energy and research. This is my commandment, Jesus says, love each other. Oh, just love each other the same way that I've loved you. That's my commandment, he says. There is no greater love than the one who lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends, he says, so do what I command. Love. And how much greater will love be in this world if we love in strong, rich, thriving relationships with one another.